Guru Nation, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. It really means a lot to me. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. Thank you so much. Leave a review. I wanted to also thank my sponsors who make this show possible. The first one is Viva Sight Vault. Absolutely free. By the way, links to all of this stuff is in the show notes. Viva Sight Vault. If you are a site and you wanted to dip your toe into going digital and for e-reg and to start messing around with e-signatures, this is the way to go. They are the biggest name in our industry from a tech vendor standpoint. They're site-centric. They make this easy for us, guys and gals. And it's absolutely free. Sites.viva.com. Check it out. I use it. I also use Versatrail, which is my next sponsor. Versatrail has made my life so easy as a coordinator from an organization standpoint. Links to all these portals are in one easy place. You can literally link to anything you can think of, whether it's a protocol or it's the latest informed consent form or it's the IRT or it's the vendor to upload this or the other vendor to upload that. It's all there in one easy place. Not to mention, they do a lot on the feasibility side, which makes feasibility surveys a breeze. Check it out. This is a company that is going places. Versatrail. My next sponsor is Creo. I've been using Creo for years. They are eSource and eReg and CTMS and patient database and eConsent and so many more other things. And while they are not free, I definitely think it is worth the price for what you are getting. It has streamlined my research studies and my site, and I got all my coordinators trained on it, and I could not picture running my site without Creo. So check it out. Link in the show note. Finally, Inato, a free service for business development. Go figure. Link in the show note. It makes figuring out what studies you want easier. It makes figuring out what you're going to get if you accept the study super simple. And it really streamlines the process for knowing what's out there on the market. You can use it for as many investigators as you have. And again, it's absolutely free in Nato. Also in the show notes are links to the businesses I own, specifically DSCS, where we help sites get studies, do their contracts, help you with surveys, anything else you can think of, a shoulder to cry on, low monthly fee. And then we have the CRA, CRC Academies, and everything guys what a great intro welcome guru nation all right guru nation like subscribe comment share we had to come because robert goldman is joining us and you know we're loyal to the game this is about the business of being a CRO, and we get accused all the time oh you guys are too negative this and that no, we are loyal to the game, loyal to the game of clinical trials, because at the end of the day, it's about patience. At the end, that's first and foremost. And then immediately after that, it's the ecosystem that provides careers. It's a platform. It's a springboard for wherever you want it to go. And for those who choose 
to go down the route of entrepreneurship, which is really what this video is going to be about. I know all you guys and gals wanting to start CROs. Well, Robert Goldman's here. He's going to tell you about the business of CROs and then Chris Sabra as well. Chris, what did you think of this song, by the way? This is one of Robert Goldman's favorite songs. What did you think of it? <laughs> no comment. You love Tupac. <laughs> Don't you love Tupac? Is that Tupac? Yeah. Yeah. The first oh, one. yeah. Okay, Chris. Chris wasn't a fan, but are you loyal to the game of clinical trials, Chris? We need to know. Loyal to the game. So, I don't know. I don't know how some really uptight sponsors would feel about uh, oh they better calling it a game. The game, they have to be. So yeah, anyway, Robert Goldman, that song always gets me pumped. It really does, man. You and I, it, it just it does. It hits the right spot because you know we are in this for the right reasons. We really are. All the stress, all the negativity. All the things we always say, at the end of the day, we wake up and come to, you know, you go to your site, Chris goes to his site, I come to my desk, I'm here for a purpose, you know, everybody wants meaning, we're here to to make changes, right, those cliche statements, bring life-changing therapies to those who need them, but man, that's what it's about, to be loyal to the game, the game of clinical research, right? Why do we do what we do? What keeps you ticking? That's what keeps me ticking. For those who want the career, for those who want to dabble in the entrepreneurship, Chris, this was your idea to do this topic, the business of a CRO. Sure, and I'm going to take issue with something Robert said right away. Oh, let's go. Let's go. So let's I agree on the individual level of the way you presented that, Robert, but I think from a large wheel perspective say it's not benevolent right these companies as Pfizer excuse me as certain scratch Pfizer certain pharma companies over the last few years have demonstrated it's not it's about the bottom line I mean their businesses um it's individuals within the company that may have some benevolent purpose or or higher motive than just making you know a greenback I don't think these companies are in it for anything other than that, for the most part. Well, Chris, I don't, I don't disagree with you in a heartbeat. I was, I was strictly talking about me, myself, and I. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, look, look, absolutely. what keeps me ticking? I, I absolutely agree with you. And it's not just pharma or biotech, right? I think that's just healthcare <laughs> as a whole. Um, mm -hmm. You know, keeping that circular um, door going. It's funny because uh, we all just got off of a previous meeting and I was just about to say something before Dan cut it off and switched over to this meeting. I had to put the song. No, 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 no. Completely understand. I w I'm not blaming you for anything, but I was just as, you know, to fill up some dead space into our conversation, <laughs> I was going to say, hey, because yeah, I don't know anything about Robert uh, health-wise, it's going to ask him if he had any kind of ongoing health issues. I have a couple and they, they both, need no treatment from doctors, but I have to go see them every three months if I want to get my prescription refilled, right? It's just because it's about the dollars, right? They, they give me BS reasons that, you know, because I asked them, can I get a year prescription? Why do I need to come here any more than once a year? 
and they won't do it. And they lie and say, because the state makes me, I have to see you every three months. Eh, excuse me, it's bullshit. That's not true, right? Because I had a previous doctor that would do that. So, yeah, it's all about the dollars, my point. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, totally, I totally agree with you. Um, it's really unfortunate. I, I definitely agree with you. Even and worse, speaking, when you're negotiating in this industry over anything, vendors, CRO, um, whatever the case may be, the stop, like you want to stop someone in their tracks of negotiating, it's, well, we're doing it for the patients. Like, it's such a sleazy move that because they know there's no, there's no conversation after that. But if you know who these people are, that's the furthest thing from their mind. You know, we're not going to get into company names and all that. But anyways, CROs, it's a good business to be in. Although um, I forget dude's name from LinkedIn, but he's, I got to start featuring him more. He showed that the, the site networks have higher profit margins than the CROs. The best run sites have higher profit margins than the best CROs. Me and Chris knew this all along, but yet and still, Robert, people still want to start CROs. And maybe we'll start with that. Like why? And then let's get into the nooks and crannies of the business behind this. Yeah, you know, I mean, from I, I'm assuming <clears throat> it's a volume and a numbers game. So if you have a pipeline of business to start and conduct in terms of studies, you know, that's where the margin starts to really kind of, there's probably an inflection point, you know? So site profit is going up, but there, there's, a, there's a place in time where CROs are going to overtake any of the best run networks that exist based on the volume of ratio and the portfolio of business that they have, right? Um, and that's really where we find ourselves with CROs today, where their backlog book to bill ratio is, is always in the billions work that hasn't even begun, but has been awarded, you know, and oftentimes you, you find that there's just more is bit off than they can chew, you know, and, and there's always like starting new work, starting new work when they really don't have the resources to even begin that work. So I don't doubt that sites have a, the best run oiled machined sites, you know, potentially have a higher margin and profit, um, you know, likelihood than, than you would a, a CRO. But the other question that begs to be answered is, you know, why that is. Um, when, you know, I remember when I was like a CRA and I found out what they bill me out for and versus what I got paid, you know, even at a senior principal level versus an entry level. Um, I can assure you the margin is like 200%. And I'm sure I'm going to get yelled at in the comments. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. Well, so they yeah. were billing just to clarify, they were billing triple what they were paying you. They're paying you a hundred dollars a visit. They're billing $300 a visit. Easy. Easy. Okay. A capitalist yeah. capitalist would argue, well, that's our business model. You know, that's yeah. business. That's what keeps us profitable. That's what, you know, that's, that's the price. That's the reward we get for the risk we have to put up. And, you know, when we sign that 1571, right. <laughs> that's uh, right. <laughs> which by the way, a lot of people, myself included, 
may not know much about 1571s. We know 1572. What is 1571? Who signs it from the CRO? So, well, God, just take a guess. 1572 is a contract essentially between uh, the PI and the FDA. So I assume that 1571 is the contract between the sponsor and the FDA. Bingo. Bingo. That's exactly precisely what it is. And instead of naming, you know, what vendors you're using as a specific site in that in that other section in the 1571, we as a sponsor denote who our CRO of choice is. Like who are we transferring um, response obligation and responsibility to in the form of a Toro? Um, very commonly referred to. Again, please, please be aware. Let me preface this by saying the ultimate responsibility for the conduct of any trial ultimately lies with the sponsor, just as at the site level, the ultimate responsibility is always with the PI. Those cannot be um, deflected. They can be delegated, but that doesn't mean that the responsibility itself is now with that person that's been delegated to. So just for your audience, Dan, I wanted to make sure that they understand that 1572 is, you know, a, a contract between the PI and the FDA, um, in a sense, so to speak. Um, but, you know, that responsibility ultimately lies on both sides. So 1571 with the sponsor, 1572 with the PI. Who's the PI on the 1571? We don't list a PI. That's why we collect no, 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 1570. Yeah, yeah. Keeping the simile, uh, uh, keeping everything similar, right? Keeping the analogy going. Thank you. The word I was looking for. <laughs> so, who is it? The CEO, of the sponsor, is the signer. On um, the... It, it's a, it's it's it, it it can be, it can be, it can also be uh you know a, a regulatory affairs department. Um you know, lead who potentially signs that on the sponsor's behalf. Um, you know, it, it depends on the structure. Very oftentimes um, for a given study, the signatory that represents on the protocol, like, you know, oftentimes it could be a CMO, a medical director, somebody in that. So it, it really varies upon company structure on who is signing that 1571. Yeah, more often than not, it's it's typically you know a regulatory affairs representative or a chief medical officer, most commonly. Um, but yeah, you can go to the FDA website and take a look at the template. It's pretty pretty. Uh, it looks very similar. Um, but yeah, fifteen seventy one denotes the sponsor that is conducting the trial on behalf of the sponsor if if the sponsor chooses to use one. So drilling back to what Dan started this conversation with um, in terms of profit margins, one thing that's very similar between a CRO and a site is they're both seeking business from the sponsor, right? So the sponsor is pretty much the apex predator in this situation, right? They're top of the food chain. Um, but that's pretty much where the similarities probably end, right? They're both employed by the sponsor. Um, and technically, a CRO can employ a site. Um, but something to what you said, Robert, um, I think while the profit margins are probably higher at site level, the overall dollars are much higher and greater at a CRO. So where the profit margin may be less, the total dollars that are accumulated and 
gone in terms or looked at in terms of profit, right? And that profit is probably much greater at the CRO level, but these projects are probably harder to get than a study at a site level. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all relative. And I would probably also say that, you know, just just the the overhead that a CRO actually has is, is quite large, you know, um, from just maintenance of systems, salary, benefits, 401ks, um, paid, you know, just just the whole the whole thing just to keep people happy. Right. Um, and then, of course, the the non billable roles where, you know, a CRO, the, the nice thing about a CRO is that you can do a pass through for the service fees for whoever is dedicated to your trial. So ultimately the CRA, like you're not incurring much because you're billing this person out. Yes, they work for you as the CRO, but you're, you're billing them out at like, let's just use the word, you know, the number 300 an hour. Um, the seat, the, the, the sponsors paying for all the pass through fees, their food, their travel, their hot, their lodging accommodations, their airfare, the, the moment the CRA leaves the door, and we're just looking at the CRA perspective, obviously there's hundreds of other roles, right? Not hundreds, but dozens um, of other roles. You know, the moment that person leaves the door on business, you know, the CRO doesn't have any overhead. So really their overhead is just the body count um, and body the associated, count. yeah, the, the, <laughs> the overall associated, you know, salaries with those, with those, um, with that headcount, we should probably call it a better term, right? So, well, it sounds like war when you say body count. At least yeah, it me. does. It does. No, it did for sure. We're not a warrior. <laughs> well, so, very similar to war with these RFPs. And so, well, what were you going to ask, Chris? Because I want to get into the actual business. Like, well, that's where I was going to go. I was just curious. What would you speculate the profit margin is at a CRO? I Dan and I have talked about this plenty because a lot of our our potential clients ask this question, hey, what's the, as a doctor, right? I have a private practice, I want to start doing research. What are my profit margins? And I usually tell them, you know, if it's, if you have a very small, simple site, it's just you and your coordinator, you're, you know, you're looking at potentially 70, 80% profit margin, right? If you don't consider your salary um, and you're already paying your expenses because you have a private practice. So you have 80% profit margin, right? 20% of the, to the coordinator and stipends to the patients outside of that, it's all in your pocket. Um, it's probably the, I would, I would speculate, and I don't know if you have any idea, Robert, but I would guess it's the reverse of that for a CRO, right? It's probably 20% profit margin. I was going to say, I honestly was going to say 40%, Okay, but you're, it's somewhere between 20 and 40. I would definitely think is the profit margin, but it scales from there. Right. I mean, it scales in terms of it's a volume numbers game. And, and the reason I said body count is because, you know, I always used to hear we don't have enough bodies to do the work. We don't have enough, you know, instead of people, it's all we don't have enough bodies to do the work that we have. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't know the answer. You know, I, I don't. I don't know. Right. What You're speculating. It's a guess. I'm totally, totally guessing, speculating. But I think 20 to 40 percent profit margin is absolutely something reasonable to expect, you know, on, on their end. Um, but when they're running, you know, or booking or billing double digit billions of dollars a year in business, some programs will be more profitable than others. 
you know, and just the volume of work that they're completing is just far, far more than, than, you know, what a site would ever, ever do. So it, it's kind of hard to look at it as, as a one-to-one, you know, even, even if you have a network of 300 sites, the revenue that they're billing per year collectively is, is likely not going to exceed one of the top five CROs. It might be in the realm if you did real simple math, right? So if you did, say each site was relatively successful and each one generated a million, and suppose they're even just doing 50%, running on a 50% profit margin, I mean, you're talking $150 million in revenue or in profits, right? Right, but Chris, the, 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 like the smallest CROs are writing, they're doing a billion, like one to two billion. The smallest like I, ones? Like I'm talking like a 500 headcount CRO is writing a, a one one to two billion a year in business, guaranteed. Yeah. You know, so I mean, if you if you th- well, right. think about so, it, think about it this way, what like, was twenty percent of that? One billion. Yeah. Twenty percent is two hundred million, so a little more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A little more. Yeah, a little right. bit more. Yeah. But you know, again, who who knows, right? I mean, it's I, I think I think they both have a lot of pros and cons. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, the CRO business itself um, is, is, a, is a good business. It's a hard business. Right. And I think that's why, like, the small boutique is, is really going to be the new trend moving forward. Right. You have uh, so many more. Why do you think that's the case? Like what you're at a sponsor level. <clears throat> what is it about? the big CROs that you think the smaller ones are going to start eating up market share little by little. And you're playing right into Dan's wheelhouse. The small is the new big is what I heard there. Oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, you look, guys, I'll give you a little sneak. I'm, I'm doing actually a, a webinar this on Friday. I'm, I've been asked to film for the D farm conference that is coming up for an emerging CRO. And that is one of the topics. We have a six minute video clip that's gonna be featuring myself along with their executive team on on why a sponsor would want to choose a small CRO, right? Versus the big CRO. And guys, this answer may surprise you. I'm gonna sum it up with one word and let let people chime in in the comments. Risk, risk. Mm -hmm. You may think that picking a large, one of the established dinosaurs, if you will, are going to eliminate the risk from the equation. Actually, in my opinion, just because I've worked at these large organizations, the risk is exponentially larger than if you were to go with a small boutique CRO. So is that because they can't move as fast or not as agile as a smaller CRO? There's more regulatory or or oversight issues. I mean, what? Why do you say that? I, I say that because typically there's more transparency, right? People can't fly under the radar, whereas they can fly under the radar and hop from one place to another. When you have a twenty, thirty thousand headcount it's a lot easier to fly under the radar than it is if you have a smaller organization with 20 to 50 or even a hundred people, right? You, you, everybody is a stakeholder. You're, you just kind of are seen, you know, you, you have, I think Chris is talking, but I can't hear him. No, no, no. I wasn't talking. I, oh. 
what I was by saying what you said though, I'm still not clear on what you mean by that. Are you saying that larger CROs tend to hire problematic individuals because exactly it, it, it well it's not that the CRO is trying to do anything egregious here. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the answer to your question is yes, the candidates themselves can get away with it. Right. So what happens in our industry and, you know, I deal with this on a, on a very, very often basis is that I see candidates go from one CRO, big one to the next. I happen to have been privy to the fact that this particular candidate CRO was released for performance issues, right? But from an HR perspective, the next CRO that's in line, right? The, the 30, 40,000, 20,000 headcount CRO that they just left and the next one in line, like the top five, let's call it, right? They don't know why that person separated from the company. You can't disclose that reason from an HR perspective. All they know is, oh, did this person work there? Yes. Great. What was their term of employment? It was from this time to this time. And when they left, what was their title? Above and beyond that, that's it. So what I'm saying is, if you're a CRA who is hopping from place to place to place because you have for whatever reason, you know, not held up to the standard of, of doing the work that you should be doing, it's much easier for those folks to fly under the radar and then get a, get assigned to a study that a sponsor is paying huge money for, whereas that doesn't happen at a smaller CRO. At a smaller CRO, if you don't hold your weight, you are going to surface and you're, you're going to show face immediately. Like you can't, hide not doing your job and doing it well right there's there's more accountability and then from a sponsor perspective there's no bait and switch there's no bait and switch the the team that's going to defend the bid during the bid defense meeting is 99% chance this the, the team I'm going to actually get if we award that study I've been parts of dozens of bid defense meetings at the large CROs when I used to work on the CRO side, and we would do bid defenses, and you'd be lucky if two out of the 15 people that presented on the bid defense meeting ever made it onto the core clinical team when the work is actually awarded and or started. And the common excuse is, oh, well, you know, that was six months ago. These, these, these people have already been allocated to other projects. And now at this point, you've already have a startup, you know, work order agreement. You know, it's like, what are you going to do? You've already awarded the study and now you're going to review new CVs and you're going to get that. Th this type of a dynamic, Chris, is less likely to happen. And this is why I divert back to that one word I used, risk. Why risk at all going to the big guy when I can minimize my risk by going to the small guy? So then why do the big guys... So this is LinkedIn user. Um, I think it's Susan Swanger. She says, when I started out, the sponsor sent the monitor to your site. Now we get one to three different CRAs in a year due to burnout or more money. So uh, this is exactly to illustrate your point. 
Robert, that it's not the same team that they're getting. But then why are the big still getting bigger? Like they're they're they are they are they Dan though? I, I don't think they are getting bigger, honestly. I, I I really don't think they're getting bigger. I actually think they're losing traction. They're losing market share. Um, that's why you're seeing consolidation. You're seeing large CROs get gobbled up by private equity. Um, you know, and I actually think that the reason for that is, is because it's that they're not getting bigger. People are catching on, you know, and I think it's a creature of old habits. You know, these large companies that continuously funnel business towards these large, large CROs, um, are starting to catch on, you know, and as a sponsor, I aspire to internalize our monitors for the reason one of your viewers just mentioned, you know, um, the sponsor used to send the CRA. Why do they do that? They do that because we can control what's happening at the site level and also our site partners. We can have more control over their experience, you know, Speaking sites that we, yeah. Too says how to find sites in remote areas. You McClango Trails, I'll help you. I had to get that one in there. Hundred <laughs> percent. So I think I think that that that's what it is. You know, I mean, I think you know people who have you know who want to actually move up in 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 places. I mean, go get a job at one of the top fives, and you can be insanely qualified. You'll be stagnant for years upon years upon years until you're just milked and <laughs> you have nothing left in you and then you have just no choice but to either go somewhere else or or whatever you know um and i've seen firsthand i'm not going to mention any specific clients but i led you know at a cro i led a team of you know 50 plus cras with a co-ctm and through startup I mean, I was getting resources, Dan, Chris, that couldn't even perform in their prior role, yet they were being promoted. You know, um, so it, it, it's just, you know, it, it's it's like, wait a minute, this person got promoted and they couldn't perform in this role. Now you just gave this person more responsibility. And this sponsor had a $500 million portfolio across for therapeutic areas, large pivotal trials, you know, spanning so, from. So maybe walk through and let's just address Corey's, Corey's uh, comment real quick. We all probably have thoughts on this. So a gentleman just made a post about fraudulent CRAs. It's probably James Fowl. Yep. I, I haven't <laughs> been on LinkedIn, but that's like, <laughs> that's been his thing lately. I found that interesting as the CRAs don't hire themselves. Very good point, Corey. And that speaks to Roberts. That further illustrates, you know, that, that ain't happening at a small CRO, Robert. Exactly. It's not. And, and, and stakeholders are the ones doing the interview. What the audience needs to really hone in on here is that given the backlog of work to be done and the revolving door, right? Someone quits this week, someone's hired next week. They're trying to remain a net zero headcount, right? So if 15 people get hired next week and 15 people quit this week, they're not growing, they're not shrinking, they're just maintaining, right? And who feels that? 
the impact of that turnover is felt at the site and sponsor level. And then as a result, the CRO comes back to the sponsor and says, oh, well, you know, there's, there's, there's a training gap. It takes the time for the CRA to onboard. Visits aren't being done within the outlined agreement. Um, you know, then they have to get their feet wet. IP takes a lot more time to learn. The processes and procedures and the templates get long to learn. They've got to just ease their way into it. And now we're losing time, right? The site's getting frustrated because the data is not being cleaned up the way that it should be. The backlog's not going down. More visits are trying to be scheduled. You're like, wait a minute. I, I, I didn't understand that there was going to be a visit every four weeks. So, um, Corey, Corey says again, just because you have a bachelor's or master's and minimum experience doesn't mean you're the best candidate. I'd rather have a person that has worked in data management with an associate's degree that is a thinker. You can't teach common sense. You, This is possible at the small CROs. Yeah. We, Chris and I have one. One of our best CRAs, Chris, we're small. She doesn't have a bachelor's degree, but she's got, what, 13 years of CRC experience, three years working with us, in-house CRA, now CRA. She would have never gotten hired at a large CRO because they care more about checking boxes than about looking at the nuances and the exceptions to the rules because they're too big. They're too well, big. Right. And so you lose efficiencies the bigger you get, but you gain market share, but the costs go up for everything, right? Because now you're just paying more money to, to, to take talent, whereas the smaller ones got to be scrappy. And they got to what Robert's alluding to with a small sponsor. That's what they prefer, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it's absolute fact. Um, I think, I, I think with, I guess with for good reason, sponsors look at it a little differently, right? Like the FTE gives no guidance on who can be a PI, but they all pretty much absolutely require you have to be an MD or a DO. It's kind of the same type of dynamic in terms of they just don't want to take any risks, right? Spending the sponsor is spending way too much money on this. Um, we don't want to be questioned on what made you determine this person who's not an MD or a DO, and again, it can be looked at this way in terms of CRAs as well, qualified to be oversight for this study. I mean, I'm sure that's just, it, it simplifies things for them. It may not bring on the best talent, which oftentimes it doesn't, but it makes, it simplifies it just to have these simple check boxes that you have to meet. All right, Robert, these last, 20 minutes or so, okay? We want to go through the process. So let's say you have a CRO, you hang out your shingle, low barrier of entry. Anyone watching this right now can call themselves a CRO and try to get business, right? Nobody, yeah. there's nothing to check. There's no license. Anything. me shoot water out my nose. But okay, <laughs> it's true, okay? Okay, you're a CRO. Let's go through the process, all right? How do you get your first study? What's that process like? Well, obviously, you have to have a brand and a network, right? I mean, it's very challenging. It's like, I mean, I would say it's it's much, much more challenging to get your first study as a CRO than it would be to get your first study as a site. So I think it's about your network, number one, first and foremost. Um, number two, 
obviously marketing so that people where you provide these services. And then number three, it's, it's just like, um, you know, an investor who's investing in a startup biotech, they invest in the team just as much as the product, you know? So I would say the same thing with a small CRO, you know, we would want to see who the team members are, right? What is their, what is their depth of expertise? So let's go through this. So, okay, you get one. Let's say it's me. All right. We, okay. I get one. I, I, I message enough people on LinkedIn. Hey, I'm a CRO, this and that. What's next? What is that sponsor supposed to send me as a CRO? Sure. So I'm going to, so if I'm interested in your services, I'm going to send you an RFP, a request for proposal. And that request for proposal is going to be very specific. It's going to have a responsibility checklist. It's going to tell you what our assumptions are, our timelines, the length of engagement, what our expectations are, what our PSM is for your audience who doesn't know what PSM is. That's your patients per site per month, also referred to as an enrollment rate. Of course, um, yeah. it's going to, it's going to highlight everything. And then I'm going to ask you to set, to respond formally within the next call it maybe three to four weeks. Cause it takes some time to put together a, a response to a, an RFP. Um, and then the CRO has to tell me whether or not my assumptions and are, are accurate and if they can actually deliver within scope of what our expectations are. Very oftentimes, Dan, I can tell you that when you send an RFP and a sponsor, I mean, a CRO that's small or even midsize, you can tell when somebody knows what they're doing based on the response to the RFP. So I don't want to get too far down, but let's start, stop there. So are, are you with me on the process so far? I'm with and, you. So. And, and that's part of the vetting, right? So once you give me back that response, you're attaching CVs, you're attaching timelines, you're attaching a bid, a cost associated with my assumptions. And so then I can basically see, okay, the total cost for this, for this study. And again, in that RFP, I'm going to tell you the number of patients enrolled, our expected screen failure rate, our dropout rate, um, how many sites we're going to be engaging. You know, if I want, it's always a three to one is typically the rule, right? If I want 30 sites, you as the CRO are going to need to reach out to 90 sites to secure 30 sites, right? And then maybe there's some backup sites in there. Um, you know, what are your startup timelines? You know, what are your contracting timelines? What are your budgeting timelines? How quickly can we get first site activated? How quickly can we get first patient in, right? So these are the assumptions. And then when you get these response back, you can kind of comb through the core team CRAs, the core team project manager, clinical lead or clinical team manager, the project director. Typically, that's you know the data manager, maybe the medical monitor. Um, but again, you know it's a very fluid, dynamically changing situation because even when you get that response back to the RFP, by time the bid defense meeting is actually scheduled you'd be surprised 50% of those people that were presented to you in the RFP response aren't even those who are participating in the actual bid defense. And then that goes down even further when you actually award the trial and start the study, you're like, wait a minute, yeah, where, where's Sarah, Mark, John, and Michelle? 
Now, where's the pitfalls, though, like for the sponsors? Because we, you know, we're a, you're a small sponsor advocate, just like you're a site advocate. And I found myself in that same situation position. I'm small site advocate. And then the more I interviewed people like you from small sponsors, I realized I'm also a small sponsor advocate. Like these are the ones who, you know, they can't waste money. They can't have relationships with revolving doors where someone on one board goes on the other and this is why I'm going to give you the deal because it's not my money anyways it's you're scrappy you know we have a lot in common small sites small sponsors what are the pitfalls for some small sponsors let's say they get let's say they send out seven RFPs for seven different CROs they'll get a range of prices right oh yeah I mean, or do you usually get like around the same place or do you get like all over? the place? It's really all over the place. It's really all over the place. And the scope of work and the bells and whistles and like what differentiates, you know, I always come back and say, okay, what are the must haves? What are the nice to haves? And what are the, eh, you know, we <laughs> could go with it. We could go without it. Right. And so you're right. I mean, the the variation in, in pricing is it's quite amazing. It's really absolutely amazing. You know, like how do you start out at forty eight fifty million dollars and you can whittle away the same contract with the same assumptions with removing the nice to haves? They're not must haves, they're nice to haves, and get that same contract down to twenty eight million. I mean, that is an insane reduction. So like there's that much variation when we send out those those RFPs. So the the downfall is the time commitment, right? You're 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 having to go through all of these bid defense meetings, ask a lot of questions, you're trying to vet in this at the same time, what is your process for this? How would you handle that? What systems are you using? You know, what is, what is, you know, trying to differentiate all the different candidates before you award the work. And then at the same time, once that bid defense is over, you have to field dozens of emails, right? Because the BD people are, are constantly following up with you. Are there any questions? Do we need another meeting? Are there anybody you want to meet on one-on-one? -on -one? This person would like to demo this system for you. This person would like to show you this thing. And you're trying to juggle. So actually, um, I would never send out seven RFPs because the time commitment for that would be extraordinary. Um, how many would you bet? Like how many? Minimally three. Minimally three, three to four. You know, um, and and typically, even smaller biotechs. You know, they already have prearranged MSAs with preferred vendors. You know. The only time you find yourself in another RFP process is, is, is if you're just not happy with your current provider, you know, then you're going to start looking at what else is out there in the event. Something may not work out right now. And know? where do you look like you're at the sponsor level? So like, yeah. let's say hypothetically you were in that situation and you want, you, you want to consider a new CRO. You're not happy with one for whatever reason. Where do you go? Like, how do you find it? You know, Dan, me, I, I go in my network, you know, I call up other people in my, you know, in similar positions to the one I have, you know, um, a lot of people that I trust that I've met and grown with and keep in touch with along the way. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to, you know, 
you've you've let's give you credit. I mean, you've introduced me to some CEOs of of small biotechs that I still keep in touch with. Um, you know, whether they're VPs now, uh, other VPs, other you know, head of clinical operations, senior directors, um, and I and I just communicate with them. Hey, you know, how are your current experiences? You know, and really that's who and how I decide on what direction to go to and kind of who to reach out to. And I can promise you, there's probably a lot more boutique CROs out there that I even know about. I see. You know, so I would love to hear more and learn about them, you know. Um, But I think in terms of, you know, who ultimately I choose, there's a lot of word of mouth there. There's a lot of word of mouth, you know, and, and it's about that trust factor. What do you yeah. vet? Like, what do you look at when you're selecting? Like, do you look at? I mean, money is obviously important, but yeah, it's budget. Y'all, is it? No, no, absolutely not. Budget is obviously, you know, budget is obviously, you know, some people are just budget focused. Like, they're looking at a number. That's very foolish. Very, very foolish. Okay, to select a vendor just based on a number alone, right? The old adage goes, you get what you pay for. So if you if you have a, a vendor CRO who's bidding on a, on a project, and yes, 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 we can do that. No problem. They don't question your enrollment rate. They don't question your timelines. They don't question your budget. They don't question the number of sites you're using. They don't question your core clinical team composition. They don't question your assumptions. That's that's a red flag right there, right there. You really should stop and reconsider because, you know, what you really want is some pushback because at the end of the day, the CRO has to justify during the bid defense meeting why they're charging what they're charging and why and how they can meet your assumptions. And they typically do this by providing historical information within that therapeutic area. So right, let's, let's say for the hold on, hold go ahead. On. sure these people that you mentioned bizdev okay bizdev is the one who tries to get the deal bizdev is also the one you said following up hey where do we stand what do you need right and once you get to the RFP all these calls who who do you expect from a sponsor like on the other side of the table as a CRO to be asking these questions you said if no one asks it's a red flag so who what job title usually is it on the other side? Typically, the, the individual who sends out the initial RFP to the CRO. So very oftentimes, it's, you know, again, it, it depends on the structure of the company and, the, and, and how many people are there, right? So very oftentimes, it can be, you know, a VP level person, a head of clinical operations person. Um, you know, it could be... You never know, a chief operating officer. So at this point, it's no longer BizDev, guys, from Syria. No. Yeah. No, exactly. It's typically not because they don't have the answers to the questions that ClinOps may have, right? Yeah. How do you plan on doing this? What is the frequency? You know, do you really think you can get by with three FTE? We're thinking it's a five FTE effort for the, for the CRAs. You want to allocate, you know, five CRAs, three of them at a 1.0 and the remaining at a 0.5. Cause you're, you know, like, is that really enough based on the interval of the visit? If these type of questions, BizDev doesn't know how to answer those. 
right? So they may be their point of contact, but they're going to say, let me get that information for you. So it's much more efficient just to go right to the right, you know, right to the, the, the direct person who's responsible for delivering that information. Okay. Um, okay. Fair enough. That's a good, good answer. So, and I'm asking cause all these are roles people can apply for. Like, sure. But you don't just get into clin ops and start talking to sponsors like, no. right? Um, you work your way not. into that. You work your way. Usually, like, who do you see in these roles? Like former CRAs, former biz dev, former reg affairs. I mean, who's like these kind of people you're talking to at this level? At the CRO or the sponsor? At the CRO level. You know, like I always say, you know, I, I don't think you can be the general unless you've ever been the soldier. You know, so typically, you know, people have this CRA level experience, project admin experience, CTM experience, project manager experience, project director experience. Um, but it, it can be, you know, it can be some project director and higher typically, um, you know, depending on the structure of the organization, there's higher levels, directors of project delivery, executive directors. Um, you can even get the VP of ClinOps, you know, who you're ever getting the, like CEO of Ikevia or like the no, of- no, 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 those, those, those folks don't know. But at the not- smaller, at the smaller zeros, you do. I can tell you firsthand, Dan, you know, I'm was talking to a smaller zero for the sake of just talking. Right. And it was amazing because I had direct access to the president um of day-to-day operations at a at a small cro where you just wouldn't get that level of service at one of the large ones like can you imagine the ceo of pick your favorite three four or five letter acronym and them jumping on the call to win the business not gonna happen dan all right so let's speed through the rest of the process so you let's say you found what cro you like you they go through the rfb they win the bid right? What happens next? I'm assuming a contract negotiation or that's already been done. No. So, so once you award the, the study formally, right. Um, you're going to do one of two things, obviously, you know, you know, is an MSA established, then you're going to do a, um, you're going to be doing a startup work order agreement. Maybe if the contract's not completely finalized, but you want to get the ball rolling, right? So Typically, that's what happens next, right? We're going to go through an MSA or we're going to just at least execute a startup work order agreement. There's going to be a transfer of funds. There's a percentage of a value of the total contract that has to be sent over so that we can cover expenses, vendor onboarding, kickoff meeting, preparation. Is it in person? Is it virtual? And we just start the, start the, start the ball rolling. You know, we start working with the startup lead typically right site startup associates and we start getting who's at this level like who now are the sites already identified so that's part of it that we we start that process once the startup work order agreement is executed you know we we as a sponsor would expect the zero if we don't already come with our own list which many sponsors do right typically they marry them right so we'll come with you know i don't know sponsors i've seen bring like hey these are here's 50 sites that we we would really like you to prioritize. And then, you know, the CRO will pick up those 50 sites and they'll add another 50 sites. Because remember, if you're targeting 30 sites, you're going to need to reach out to 90 to secure 30. That's typically the rule, three to one, right? 
Right. So, so once you do that, you know, you start to do a lot of things in parallel. So site identification, and then once the site indicates interest, you start the CDA process, right? Then you send them the synopsis. And then if they agree to that, you start working with CTA budget negotiations, right? Um, and that's how you start working through getting your, your site list solidified. Okay. And then we start working towards, you know, a kickoff meeting, an investigator meeting, right? Kickoff it's meetings with each of the now, vendors. Now at this point, it's the CRO's job because they're on the clock, right? Like they, yeah. they're on the contract. Oh yeah. It's their job to help speed this stuff along. It's not just sponsor kick back and, you know, call us when you need us, unless that's what they negotiated up front. But it's, hey, you're you're expected now. Where are we with contracts? Where are we with site selection? Where are we with feasibilities? And it's, got it. at this point, is it usually the CTM at the CRO that's dealing with the sponsor or... It's usually the, so in the startup, it's, it's typically the startup lead in conjunction with the CTM. Okay. And then of course, in conjunction with the project manager, you know, those are the three main stakeholders that you're working with, um, as you, and you're having weekly three, meetings. Number three. Yep. That number three. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So CTM and startup specialist yep, lead of exactly. in the startup phase. Yep. Okay, exactly. now let's say SSV, SIVs are all done. Yep. Investigator meetings done. Time for action. Like yep. not, nothing's happened so far. This is so far everything cost means nothing to you and it costs a whole bunch of money to you. So that's right. Now you need patients in the study. Yep. So, so during, you know, at that SIV, you know, not every time, depending on the timelines, are those CRAs who are conducting the SIVs going to be those CR, same CRAs who are conducting the first monitoring visit. The standard, the gold standard within the industry um, is typically, you know, the first IMV, whether it's remote or on site, that's determined during the startup you know, agreement in the work order. Some sponsors have different requirements, but you'll know whether or not you have to do it on-site or remote, but every site should have their first monitoring visit within two weeks of their first randomization. That's very standard, right? Yeah. We've all heard that. Then par after that, par for course, right. And then after that, the typical interval defined in your clinical monitoring or management plan will be followed, right? But Again, it's identifying those resources. Like oftentimes the CRO will scramble to find a resource to go out and do that IMV, that first IMV in line with the CMP, because it's not always that, you know, and I mean, Dan, Chris, let me ask you a question. You're site owners. How yeah. many times, how many times have you seen an SIV, a CRA conduct an SIV who is not the same CRA who did your first IMV? Yeah, pretty, pretty much every time. What every time? No, it's usually SSV every time, but not SIB. No, isn't he asking how many different CRAs from the SIV to the SSV, right? Isn't that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah both, both. SIV to your first IMV. Yeah. I mean, how many, like, let's just, okay, let's just focus on that one, Chris. How many times has the, has the CRA who did your SIV is that this? How many times has that CRA shown up to do your first IMV? Oh, I misunderstood your question. I thought you were asking, does the SIV, or does your SIV 
the CRA, but the same CRA that does your SIV. SSV, sorry, SSV, <laughs> SIV. Um, but yeah, usually the SIV monitor is almost always the same as the IMV. Not always, but almost. Okay, but my point is there's some variation there, right? Sometimes. I would say probably looking at one in five, somewhere in that realm. Okay. Not the same. 20% of the time, they're different. Yeah. So again, 20% of the time is still a lot of amount of time to have somebody come in. It's like, wait a minute, I was just trained by this person <laughs> who, who laid out their expectations. And then you have a new person come in because by the time you randomized your first patient, that CRA is already gone who did your SIV. Right. You know, obviously it's not always ideal. What's that? Probably to another, probably to another CRO because of this comment here. Uh, <laughs> burnout and more money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I have something I'm curious about. So um, Dan and I have talked about this much over the last few years. Um, it makes sense for sponsors, small sponsors, to work with CROs, right? Because they don't want to in-house all the necessary employees and train everybody and staff appropriately. Makes perfect sense, small sponsors. Not too long ago, probably a year or two before the pandemic, I would say most medium-sized sponsors did everything in-house. And many of the large sponsors did everything in-house, or quite a bit of it. And, and Dan and I were, at the time, we're talking about how CROs were becoming a thing of the past, right? They're going away. But actually, I think it's reversing. I see lesser CRO or less sponsors in housing everything and working more with CROs now than they did pre-pandemic. Do you have any rationale behind that? Is that accurate? I, 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 I hope it's not. Accurate. Well, I'll give you an example. Johnson and Johnson used to do everything in-house. Yeah. They only work with CROs now. Abby yeah. used to do everything in-house. Half of their studies are with CROs now. Yeah. So and these are larger sponsors. Sure. Um, Neurocrine did everything in-house, a medium-sized sponsor. They only work with CROs now. Right. So yeah. they, uh, those three, those four you mentioned, they still do their own site selection and community outreach. I just signed a CDA with well, three of those four that you mentioned within the last year, mm -hmm. they reached out to me and said, hey, we want to work with you, McLean Trials. And they all have CRO, but we came in, like Robert said, we came in on the sponsor side of the sites. Right, but my point is they used to not have CROs at all. Abby and Johnson yeah. Johnson in particular. Right, um, they used to do everything in-house. Yeah. yeah, I think, Chris, you know, a lot of it has to do with the just the, the, the times that we're in. You know, the, 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 you know, I, one would argue whether you're bullish or, or, or not on this current economy. Um, you know, if, if we're talking the last two to three years or even five years, I mean, I think it's going to be cyclical. I think you're going to end up seeing a lot. Cause I, I can tell you, you know, um, my ambitions as a senior director, head of clinical operations of where I'm at. I would love more than anything to internalize just for the sake of quality control, um, you know, and outsource as little as possible. Why the big guys are doing it, I would have to imagine has something to do with, you know, um, just, you know, 
I, I actually have no clue. I, I can't even, I don't want to make myself sound silly. I, I don't, I don't really, un, it, it's kind of boggles the mind, to be honest with you. Um, I don't know why they would do it, especially if that was their model previously to pivot that way. There, there must be a monetary reason for it, Chris. And I'm not hundred percent sure. Or you staffing. Know? Or staffing. They may have yeah. difficulties keeping the, the staff in there. Staffing and the core competencies. I'm noticing the sponsors are leveling up on their end of who's supervising the heroes. So we may not see it as sites as much like we're in interfacing with the CROs, but it seems like the sponsors have a team now of people to deal just with the CRO on a particular study. That's the case in the current study I have right now, huge sponsor, probably the biggest one. They use a CRO, but they have a team dedicated to us. Like, Hey, are you guys okay? What do you need? What's going on? And then they're also on the back end dealing with the CRO to keep things on track. I think the big sponsors can afford that, but it's it boils down to I think core competency and maybe economies of skill. Like and staffing is probably a big thing too. It is a big thing, and also you know a lot of sponsors want their want their staff on site. You know, like the remote hmm. life is is also really not something that is is you know at least now post post pandemic um a lot of the you know sponsor jobs even when you're a cra you're expected to be on site live in a certain geographic area um that could have something to do with it also chris and i think staffing and and money is is, is a big thing i mean it, it might actually be cheaper to outsource a lot of the work than to internalize it um, when you can go ex-USA to get, you know, data management services, pharmacovigilance services, safety monitoring services. That's the scary part. I met on this desk. Okay, they came, they came to Yuma to visit us from a diagnostics company last week. Podcast should be up soon. This person's on Reddit reading. She's from a sponsor, project manager, reading CROs and sponsors talking about, okay, well, we know the data management's already outsourced overseas. We know safety, pharmacovigilance, outsourced overseas PMs. They're like starting to write this stuff on Reddit. So the globalization of our industry may start to have real ramifications here pretty soon. I don't think it's going to touch CRAs. Like for what you just said, sponsors want them on the ground at the site, even regional. Yep. But for some of the other stuff, like PMs, you can argue, PV. I mean, it's already happening in some of those other departments. Yep. And even with these large pharmas being global organizations, you know, there's probably, I mean, again, I'm I'm probably, I'm definitely the wrong person to speculate because that's all it is, is a speculation. But I'm sure there's a a good reason for why they've pivoted their strategy, Chris, you know, back to what your question was on why they used to internalize everything. Because from a QA perspective and, a you know, a QC perspective, you're just not going to get the same outcome, you know, and you're never going to have perfection. There's never going to so, be perfection. So just thinking of a way to possibly answer my own question. Yeah. Um, Maybe 
so like for example medium-sized sponsors and small sponsors too a lot of times it doesn't make sense for them because they don't have the pipeline of new drugs right to train all the staff and have it in-house and keep it employed when there's literally no project no work right so what are you going to do? Lay these people off and try and hire them back after you train them? No, they're going to be somewhere else. Now you got to train all new staff for each new project. So CROs make sense in those cases, right? Those models. Absolutely. But maybe, maybe, I don't know, I'm again speculating. Spot, even larger sponsors, maybe what they're doing is turning to CROs that specialize in certain areas. And hey, when we have this new pipeline of drug, whatever it might be, uh, CNS, for example, we'll turn to a, a CRO that specializes in CNS. Yeah, right. absolutely seems reasonable to me. It's probably actually, yeah, I think you nailed it, quite honestly. They, they end up, if given enough time, though, these specialists, look at INC Research. Remember that one? Yeah, they did CNS yeah. pretty much exclusively. They merged with Cineo. They got acquired. They Do you know what INC stand? I used to work for INC, and we all had to know. Do you know what INC stands for? No. Integrated Neuroscience Consortium. See? They were a strictly CNS-based company, 100%. And now they are Cineos. Yeah. Right? Because of like two or three other CROs they packaged together. Yeah. Publicly traded. Maybe PE at one point. So, point is... You can have that theory and that strategy, but ultimately consolidation happens. And at the end of the day, it's just, it becomes, but it becomes a commodity. I could see that. Sure. I mean, I completely agree with that because you and I, I think we're talking about this last week, Dan, or the week before, but wouldn't it make sense for these larger, very large CROs to in-house all these specialties? Like here we have our CNS branch, here we have... Our they GI do. branch here. We have do. our right. They do. They have they like yeah. They do. Figures. Yeah. They just don't have separate brands for them. Like they call it all the same thing. Yeah, it's all Zinios or right yeah. TV or whatever the case might be. But what they should do is like white label their brand and just have those little. I mean, I don't. And I don't know how important that actually is to the sponsors, but who knows? Like. Apparently the landscape is shifting. We're we're all just as confused uh, as everyone else. Yep. And uh, private equity. This is gonna be. We're gonna have to do a part two because I'm gonna have to run right now. But we're gonna have to do this again, part two, like continuation of this. Private equity is coming in, right? And then private equity is now coming at the site side. So the real sites, not the DCT stuff. The real brick and mortar. Like, Chris, you and I talk to PE like five times a month, different ones. Yep. And our sites are not even big. What they're trying to do is they're trying to buy three from here, three from here, eight from here, nine from here, put them all in a package, make it 30 sites, flip that to a CRO, right? Or go pub. No one's done this yet, but go public with like 100 of these sites. Mm. PE's in this, private equity is in this space now. And it's going to change it for better or for worse. But yeah, it's we're, just, changed. we're just talking about this today with an email uh, you received. Yeah. Oh, yes. They're trying to buy CRC Academy, Robert. My like, goodness. They're just <laughs> anything they could get their hands on in any part of this ecosystem. PE is all in right now in this space. 
it's going to be an interesting time. It's going to be an interesting time. I mean, you know, to be determined on what the impact of, of, of PE will be, um, you know, and that's kind of why, oof, that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> so I say this can be part two, part three, part four, part five. Yeah. But behind the scenes, the three of us, three is a great number working on some CRO projects and there are hat into the thing as well. Cause why not? You know, if you're going to be a generalist, I mean, Chris and I have been doing like investigator initiated trials, but we're going to try for bigger type of studies. Too, here and there. Exactly. Exactly. Glad to have you on board. And, um, Chris, glad your Wi-Fi got better, man. Yeah. It was freaking out there for a while. Kids must be on the Roblox. <laughs> Too hard. <laughs> and Robert, thank you as always. Everyone, Absolutely, oh, thank you. We got like depends on quality of work. Thank you to all the comments. Like it's a little bit late. This one, Samantha, I don't know of any. I was saving this one for Robert. Are there any reference guys guides one can read on following this discussion to gain further insight on the business of a CRO? I don't know anyone who would be crazy enough to write this book. Yeah, but we should probably. <laughs> talk to some some thought leaders in the CRO space and get them to to write something because that would be a great guide to have. Well, what we would have to do is curate their knowledge and put it in a book. Yep. I just don't need more projects, guys. But um, that would be something free business tip for anyone watching. Right? This is a business plan. This book will sell. It will be irrelevant in three years, but it will sell. It will sell. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Thank you guys. Um like, subscribe, comment, share. And then catch y'all later. Follow Robert underneath. I would tell you to follow Chris, but he's unfollowable. So there you go. <laughs> later. Have a good one.